Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions I think on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Which way is up? As the Fed talks taper, COVID keeps growing, and a debacle 7,000 miles away consumes Washington. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a week marked by uncertainty leading to indecision. Uncertainty over the economy as retail sales fell more than expected. Uncertainty over how quickly the Fed will taper its bond buying after minutes from last month's meeting showed at least some members want to get going before the year is out. And uncertainty over whether a crisis caused by American withdrawal from Afghanistan could make it even more difficult for the Democrats to get their spending package through the Congress. And the markets this week reflected much of that uncertainty by being somewhat indecisive. Over the week, the S&P 500 was down a bit, but that was after it was up on Monday, way down on Thursday, and then recovered on Friday. Small caps took a hit, but again, not in a straight line, with losses on Tuesday and Thursday partially offset by gains on Wednesday and Friday. Treasury yields remained stubbornly below 1.3, and commodities were the one asset showing real direction, with oil down consistently through the week. To give us an investor's perspective on these indecisive and slightly nervous markets, we welcome now Catherine Keating. She is CEO of BNY Mellon Wealth Management. So give us a sense of what you learned, if anything, through this somewhat tumultuous week. Yeah, so I think the word I would use to describe this week, David, is moderating. Hmm. Moderating. We came off a quarter of just torrid earnings growth, right, 90% earnings growth. And now we're looking at the economic data to try to, to, try to figure out what the future holds. And as you said, we, we saw... Um, you know, declines in consumer confidence, declines in, in retail sales, um, declines in the mortgage market, right? Modest declines in the mortgage market, which has been very strong. On the other hand, we see corporate America continue to do well, industrial production up. So, you know, things are moderating, and that's normal at this point in the cycle. That's normal at this point in the cycle. You can shut down an economy all at once, 
but it opens in an uneven pace. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. And, and investors are looking through that and looking ahead. Well, that's my question. What are you hearing from mm -hmm. customers? What are, they, what are they saying? Are they nervous about this? Are they pretty sanguine? They think it's all going to come out okay? You know, one of the things I think that we have learned through this crisis is how quickly things happen, mm -hmm. how quickly a virus spreads around the world, how quickly you can close down the economy, how quickly the market can sift through all that information. We had a six-week bear market, and the market completely recovered in six months. So they're learning to sift information very quickly. One of the other pieces of information we sifted this week was the news about the uh, coronavirus and the need for booster shots, yeah. right? The market's weighed that, understanding it, is looking forward. And again, the market always looks forward a few quarters. Um, and looking forward, we continue to think uh, the economy is healing. We're growing at a 6% rate. That's three times what we were growing at before this crisis. And we think there's a lot of support for markets. Catherine, on Wall Street, we, we talk a lot about investors. Uh, mm -hmm. Let's be a little more precise about who these investors are. Right. You pointed right. to a piece on the Bloomberg, actually, this week mm -hmm. about Fidelity, which reported that the number of 401ks went up something like 85%. The number of IRAs went up 75% of people with a million dollars or more in them. Is there a fundamental shift coming in who these investors are that is retail versus institutional? And that is exactly the right question, David, because the structure of the markets has changed during our lifetimes. Today, the retail segment of the market, the, the assets that are governed by individuals, is larger than the institutional, institutional segment, and it's growing faster. And there's a reason for that. It's corporate America has fundamentally changed the way we save for retirement. Mm -hmm. Our parents' generation, they probably had a defined benefit plan. They retired with a pension, an annuity for the rest of their lives, and their personal savings. Today, we save for our retirements ourselves. If we work for a great company, we're lucky to have them contribute as well, but it's defined contribution plans, it's 401k plans, and our personal savings that make us ready for retirement. So that's why you see this happening. I think one of the interesting things about that story is it does show the power of investing over the long term, the average age of some of those folks with those, the million-dollar accounts was 58. Mm. So it shows the power of investing over time in markets that do go up over time. So to put it very bluntly, do we know what we're doing? It sounds nice to take control of our own retirement benefits. At the same time, when it was our pension plan, we sort of thought there yeah. were professionals doing what they were doing. Right. I'm not sure I'm as good as those pension right. people are. Does it change the way that the market performs? Yes, it does. So, um, yes, that pension plan had professional management. It had a chief financial officer. It had a chief investment officer doing, running it in, with very clear institutional disciplines. How much do we have to earn? What should our asset allocation be? How much do we have to pay out to our retirees? Very, very disciplined, very mathematical. There's nothing that requires us to do that ourselves. There's nothing that requires us. We have to embed that ourselves in what we do. And that's, and that's actually quite a mission for us in the wealth management industry because consumers are 70% of the economy. We want them to have very solid financial futures, very rewarding retirements. And so we're trying to embed all of those institutional disciplines right into wealth management. I'm not sure how many of us individuals are paying mm -hmm. attention to the Fed, but a lot of the institutional people are. We will next week be we paying will. attention in Jackson mm -hmm. Hole, which is now going to be virtual, it turns out. They're not yes. going to actually get together mm -hmm. in Jackson Hole. What are you looking for to come out of those meetings? So I think we're looking for two things next week. One is, of course, Jackson Hole, and we look forward to Chairman Powell's speech on Friday. We'll be very interested to see whether he talks about tapering. He may. He may not. He may wait a week and get the jobs report the first uh, week of September. Um, so he might not message anything very clear about tapering. Um, we also were looking at the, the PCE 
inflation indicator yeah. that comes out next Friday, right? The Fed's uh, preferred measure. You know, CPI, the rate of increase at CPI came down. That will probably come down, too. That's, that's an important data point. Um, and so we're really looking at those things next week. That's Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon Wealth Management. Coming up, sometimes the tortoise beats the hare. We talk with long-term value investor John Rogers of Ariel Investments about what their reflation trade means for value stocks and why bigger may not necessarily be better. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. The growth versus value debate is a long-standing one, with mega-cap growth stocks hogging the spotlight in recent years with the star power of names like Google and Tesla. The five largest components of the S&P 500 are Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Alphabet. Here's David Leibovitz of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. We're getting to a point where the, the rest of the market needs to participate. It can't be all about five or ten names in the S&P 500. Even though growth stocks have largely outperformed value stocks over the past few years, it didn't used to be that way. And value still has a place in long-term investing strategy. These value stocks are still generally cheap and, and under-owned relative to growth stocks. So, um, you know, I think there's there's a number of drivers that can even be more important than, than interest rates in terms of owning value over growth right now. That's Jill Carey Hall of Bank of America. Economic conditions may be ripe for value. Bets on economic recovery bring the prospect of higher Treasury yields yet to come, which would tend to lift companies sensitive to the economy overall, a trend that began at the end of last year when the reflation trade lifted value stocks as the global economic recovery began to take shape. Here's Citigroup's Tobias Lefkovich. The U.S. is a heavy growth market, and if you believe bond yields are going to edge higher, then growth stocks are going to take a little bit on the chin. And that's why you'd probably want to be in more value-oriented areas. When it comes to value investing, no one knows it better or is perhaps more identified with it than John Rogers, co-CEO of Area Investments, with some $16.8 billion under management last time I counted. And we welcome John now to Wall Street Week. John, thank you so much for being with us. Let me start with the most basic uh, questions here. We talk about value versus growth a lot, but when you take a look for uh, value stocks, what are the criteria you use to say, yes, that's in the value bucket? What do you look at? Well, first of all, we look at what we think is uh, the way that we look at value is we want to have a low price earnings multiple, a low price to EBITDA multiple, 
And at the end of the day, we're looking for new companies that are selling at at least a 40% discount to their intrinsic value, uh, what we call our, our private market value. And we think that's critical to get it more than a 40% discount. So let me understand that intrinsic value, because I've seen some debate now about how you define value. Some people would talk about price to book and say that actually that number is somewhat outmoded because tech has sort of changed the assets you keep on your balance sheet. Do you look at things like price to book or price to cash flow? Well, we do look at price to cash flow for sure, but we also are you know, doing the traditional uh, discount to present, you know, discounting future cash flows into the future to get to what we would look at at our private market value. So uh, that's something, you know, people learn in business school, even though I didn't go to business school, but all of our analysts have, and, and, and they really do believe that, you know, looking at those future cash flows, discounting them back is how you get to a real true value of a company. So when you get to your bucket of, okay, these are value stocks, how do you discriminate among them and say, yeah, those are the ones that I think are really good investments for the future. Those may be value stocks, but I'm not so sure about them. Well, one of the things we always borrow from our, you know, our hero, uh, Warren Buffett, we want to make sure that the company truly has a real moat around it so that five to 10 years from now, you can bet that that company's still going to be a leader in their field and it will be hard for competitors to come and knock them off. That's really what we are trying so hard to understand is making sure that industry is stable and that company's leadership role is going to be stable in the long run. Of course, we, we make mistakes, and so we want to make sure we have a margin of safety in case we're wrong. So we want to make sure the companies have a very, very strong balance sheet that can withstand all types of pressures that happen and that are inevitable as our economy goes up and down. And then finally, we're trying to look to a management team that we think is shareholder friendly, that cares deeply about their shareholders as well as their customers, as well as their employees. So getting to know management is an important part of our research, going out and visiting companies, talking to management teams every quarter, understanding, understanding their strategy and their plans to win is an important part of our analysis. Uh, John, I think one of the big changes, certainly since maybe 2008, maybe before, but I think since 2008, has been the role of government, uh, first on the monetary side and then the fiscal side, in really in, in involving themselves in the economy. I mean, some people have said the, the referee has now joined the game. Has that changed the calculus when it comes to value, when you know that you can have the massive, massive sort of fiscal and monetary stimulus? Well, we think that has certainly made it very difficult over the last uh, you know, 12 to 13 years. You're right. Since the financial crisis, the Fed is in, you know, has injected so much liquidity into the market. They've kept interest rates historically low for a historic length of time. And that makes the value of growth stocks you know, look relatively cheap. You know, the S&P at 21 times earnings is not overvalued if, if interest rates stay this low. But we do think inevitably all this stimulus has got to have an impact on inflation. And as we think about all the new things that are being contemplated now by government to throw even more resources at our economy, that ultimately that's going to cause higher inflation that will cause higher interest rates and be a reason why growth stocks will start to underperform because so much of their earnings power comes out into the future, and if you have higher rates, the, those future earnings are not worth as much today. John, those of us in business and financial news like to think that we're providing information and making better, helping people make better decisions with investments, but I wonder if sometimes we might skew the system a bit. We tend to cover the really big ones. You know, when somebody goes over a trillion dollars in market cap, boy, they get a lot of attention. Some people have balloons coming down and things. 
But talk to us about large versus small, because I think you have a somewhat different view about this. Well, from the very beginning, when, when we started Ariel 38 years ago, we were heavily influenced by the place that I used to work, William Blair. You know, Mr. Blair used to always talk about the fact that smaller companies should be able to grow faster than larger companies. And we still believe that today. They can be more nimble. They can be able to uh, take advantages of market opportunities when you're small and nimble. But secondly, smaller companies are less well-researched. They, they were less well-researched uh, 40 years ago, and they're still less well-researched. They're not as well-followed. So you can find some inefficiencies in the small-cap sector. And even today, the amount of research in the small-cap sector, as you suggest, have gotten less and less and less. People are just not following these sort of neglected companies uh, the way they follow the large growth companies that have been so popular, that are the multi-trillion dollar companies. So you can do your own homework, do thorough research, and find these undiscovered gems, we think, in that small-cap sector today more than ever. And that's why we continue to fish in that same fishing pond. That's John Rogers, the chairman and co-CEO of Ariel Investments. Coming up, Greg Fleming of Rockefeller Capital Management on where high net worth individuals are putting their money in a low return world. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Investors of all sorts struggle these days to find yield and places where they can get paid for the risks that they're taking. Greg Fleming is president of Rockefeller Capital Management, managing assets of some $75 billion. At least that's the last time I checked. And it's his job to find those opportunities that aren't quite so obvious, especially for high net worth individuals. Rockefeller grew out of the family office of John D. Rockefeller, the oil magnate. And we welcome Greg now to Wall Street Week. Thank you so much for being with us, Greg. It's a big shoes you have to fill there with John D. Rockefeller. But give us a sense, as you talk to these high net worth individuals, what are they looking for and where, where are you finding it? It's good to be here, David, and good to see you. Um, David, our clients are primarily high net worth uh, individuals and families, and even into the ultra high net worth category. And we work with them through private wealth advisors that uh, deal with the clients uh, and their investment needs in the near term, all the way through to retirement, generational planning. So we take a long horizon with our private wealth teams. Uh, and when we look at the world today, given, as you said, and you set it up well with uh, a low rate environment, and if anything, rates are going to go higher from here. You have equity markets that have both volatility, and they have been on any historical measure pretty fully priced, uh, particularly in certain parts of the equity markets. So what we counsel our clients on, given that they can handle the illiquidity that comes with alternative investments, is to put a portion of their assets with best-in-class alternative managers across a range of different uh, investment strategies. And sometimes that even extends to direct, uh, investing directly in companies that are doing capital raising rounds uh, on a direct basis. So we think... Uh, for high net worth and ultra high net worth investors, it's important to have a, a percentage of their assets in alternative investments through best-in-class managers. We spend a lot of time researching different managers and different strategies, and then uh, our private wealth teams uh, bring those investments uh, to uh, our clients. So, Greg, uh, just educate me on this. When I hear alternative investments, I think I'm giving up some liquidity. Those tend to be things where I have to commit some money for some period of time, sometimes for a long period of time. Is that right? And if so, what's the trade-off there, particularly in uncertain times when there's a fair amount of volatility? 
they do tend to be more illiquid and the investment horizon is is often longer certainly than a publicly available security whether it's a, a stock or a bond so there's no question that that's what uh, you're, you're giving up when you um, when you move into alternative investments but those investments then are made whether it's a private equity manager or even a hedge fund they tend to be made with a longer term investment horizon in mind um, and uh, it allows the investor to access these managers uh, who are uh, investing through the cycle, if you will, David. So uh, we think it's an important uh, uh, additive part of, of an investment plan for high net worth and ultra high net worth investors who don't have to access the full range of their portfolio on, uh, on a real-time, near-term basis. So, so, Greg, uh, at Bloomberg here, we had an interview this week with the head of the Nor Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, who manages a fair amount of money, I think it's fair to say. I believe it's the largest in the world. And what he said was he thought the biggest threat to his portfolio, and that's on the fixed income side and on the equity side, is inflation at this point. Do you agree with that? And if so, how do you take that into account as you make investments? You know, I, I think that inflation, and he's probably, what he's doing is he's saying inflation uh, which will ultimately lead to higher rates, is the threat to its investment portfolio. And this is why the Fed is working hard to thread this data. They wanted some near-term inflation here for multiple reasons, uh, including trying to avoid the uh, deflationary trap that, that Japan has struggled with for so long, and to get some pricing power in the hands of companies. So they wanted, uh, and they've hung with this, I think, uh, uh, for, for some time to, to get some inflation in the system. But if it goes too far and if it becomes something and, and you know, people forget that inflation is also about expectations. And earlier in, in our lives and careers, there was more inflation. And when there's a sense of inflation, if it starts to get built into the system, then it, it does tend to uh, be, be harder to move. And also, you know, if you factor in uh, the um, increase in uh, home price, uh, home prices and, and home price uh, sales for existing homes over the last year, You've had real inflation in the economy. So he's looking at it and he's worried about the fact that if it gets ahead of the Fed and the Fed has to start raising rates, that's obviously difficult for fixed income investments. But it also tends to a rising rate environment is a harder thing on equity markets as well. So that's why he's saying, wait a minute, if inflation starts to move and if it gets ahead of the central bankers and interest rates follow, which they will necessarily have to at that point, that could be problematic for both sides of uh, the portfolio. That's Greg Fleming of Rockefeller Capital Management. Coming up, we wrap up the week with special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. 
This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We have a lot to go over this week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, let's get right to it. The biggest story of the week, I think, on the headlines every single day was Afghanistan. It's a political, geopolitical, real crisis, I may say. Are there any economic ramifications, do you see? Two comments, uh, David. Uh, If this affects the broad perception of the administration, that could have economic consequences. If you look back to the fall of uh, Saigon, no major economic consequences that followed that. And rather remarkably, uh, a month and a half afterwards, the president's popularity was up by 10 points. Here's what people aren't paying attention to. The Taliban is going to find its victory very challenging. Afghanistan was an economy supported largely by foreign aid. That foreign aid, the U.S. spending from its troop presence, all of that is going to dry up. And that's going to make governing Afghanistan extremely difficult. And it may, a few months from now, be a source of leverage for people on the outside with respect to what happens there. They've got big economic challenges ahead, much larger than people are recognizing. Uh, Larry, having been in Washington, take your first point. Do you think this puts some of President Biden's Build Back Better plan in jeopardy up on the Hill? I think the linkages between foreign policy and domestic policy tend to be smaller than foreign policy people think. (laughs) And, you know, it will all hinge on what happens over the next uh, couple of weeks. And we've had a tough few days and may well be the next few days are going to be even uh, tougher. But if we are substantially successful with respect to uh, the evacuations and this doesn't dent the president's overall standing, I don't think the effect is going to be very large. If the president loses 10 approval points, all bets are off on his ability to move major legislation. But it's really an indirect effect through what it means for the president's approval, which is the coin of the realm in terms of presidential power. Larry, another story in the news throughout the week has been COVID-19, the Delta variant, including now the recommendation about booster shots for people who are already fully vaccinated. You were one of the very first that I knew, at least, to spot this pandemic on the rise. Give us your sense about where we are in COVID and specifically on booster shots, something we talked about last week on Wall Street Week which is if we give the shots to booster shots, then what are we doing for the rest of the world that is not vaccinated at all? Look, I think this is as clear a case as I've ever seen for where we need to shift from a policy of either or to a policy of both and. Uh, It is not remotely tenable for a U.S. president to heed the advice of the WHO that somehow he shouldn't do what he thinks is necessary for the health of American children and American seniors in order to vaccinate people uh, abroad. That's not how countries operate. It's not how the United States will or uh, should operate. On the other hand, 
There is no reason why we can't be launching big initiatives in tandem around both uh, the booster shots at home and about supporting resilience capacity, exporting vaccines and all that goes with uh, responding to the pandemic. And so I'd like to see the United States be much more in the lead on the global effort at the same time that we're redoubling uh, our efforts at home. I think that's the only way uh, forward. If we pose this as a choice between American eight-year-olds and uh, kids in developing uh, countries and societies that are falling apart, that kind of hard-heartedness and hard-headedness will come back to haunt us for a very long time. Larry, investors in the United States clearly were paying attention to China this week because China seems to be clamping down on yet another industry almost every day. We started with tech, and then we went on to things like media with reports they're going to clamp down on that. Now we're talking about cosmetics and liquor manufacturers. It's raising questions in some people's mind. Goldman Sachs, a lot of, said, Goldman Sachs said a lot of their customers are asking, is China investable at this point just because Beijing seems to be almost capricious? Look, uh Every investor will have to make their, make their own judgment. Those who are serene about China remind me of those who are serene about inflation. Bad things keep happening, adverse surprises keep happening, and they keep explaining them in terms of specific factors and resisting the idea that there's some kind of emergent general pattern. And I think there is an emergent general pattern uh, not that China's going back uh, to Mao, uh, not that China's going to entirely renounce the market system, but I think the risks uh, for foreign investors are going up and have to be going up at a time when the greater insertion of the Communist Party into every private enterprise is emerging as a very important priority uh, for the Chinese government. So it's certainly a riskier uh, environment. And I think that when you have a riskier environment, people demand much higher returns. And then there's a question as to whether, given the tensions between our nations, the much higher returns that are necessary to compensate for much greater risks are going to be politically sustainable for a long time in China. So I think uh, anxiety is the right thing. In conclusion, Larry, let's go through a rapid round of Summer Says here, and we'll do it a little bit differently. Uh, and three different topics, let's take a look at better or worse, one week out, one month out, six months out. Start with Afghanistan. Do you think one week, one month, six months out is going to be better or worse? Worse, 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 better. Okay, six months um, out, you think worse, it might worse, be better? Worse, worse, better. Six, month, six months out, I think that we're going to have more leverage than, we realize, than people think we're going to have as the challenge of governing Afghanistan uh, is there for the Taliban and they become dependent for various kinds of economic assistance on uh, the rest of the world. Okay, Afghanistan was number one, number two is COVID. Once again, one week out, one month out, six months out, better or worse? Um, about the same, worse, uh, better. Uh, I think it's uh, I think we're clearly in the midst of an upsurge from Delta, 
But I think the dynamics around vaccination will change. And I think as more and more people tragically are infected, more and more people will have a period of uh, immunity. So I think we're going to be further down the road towards a new, somewhat unfortunate equilibrium where uh, COVID is like a second flu, but is less paralyzing of society six months from now. Okay, one more. The economy. Give us your read. One week out, one month out, six months out, better or worse? I think it's going to get more difficult. Uh, combination of, uh, of COVID, rising uh, price pressures, uh, financial markets that are priced uh, for perfection. I don't think it gets much better from here anytime uh, soon. Uh, We'll see some further reductions in unemployment, but I think the mood uh, is probably going to get surlier uh, pretty continuously over the next six months. Okay, there you have it. That's what Summers says. Thank you so much to our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. Finally, one more thought. Baseball as a science or not. Steve Cohen made his name as an immensely successful hedge fund manager. So when he bought the New York Mets, no one thought he did it to lose, something he confirmed at his first news conference as owner. I want to thank my fellow Mets fans, the greatest fans in baseball. Your support has been incredible. You want us to win the World Series, and so do I. New York fans have high expectations, and I want to exceed them. I want an exceptional team. I want a team that's built to be great every year. I don't just want to get into the playoffs. I want to win a championship. And for three months this season, it looked like Steve Cohen was going to get his wish as the Mets led the National League East. But then, then they had a bad road trip and dropped out of first to second and then to third, falling below 500. So Steve Cohen does what he does best. He applied the mathematical prowess that made him a billionaire, analyzed his team, and took to Twitter, saying, quote, it's hard to understand how professional hitters can be this unproductive. The best teams have a more disciplined approach. The slugging and OPS numbers don't lie. Now, for those of us who don't really follow baseball stats, OPS is a combination of on-base and slugging percentage. Mr. Cohen's rigor in analyzing his myths brings back memories of Billy Bean in Moneyball, when he brought in a young economist to help remake his Oakland A's after concluding that the only way they had to go was up. And who knows, maybe Mr. Cohen is on to something. Hours after he publicly called the Mets out, they came from behind to beat the Giants in extra innings, 12 innings, to be precise. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston, this is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q and Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.